All right, church, we are in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Get excited. There's something in here for everyone. So here we go. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, such as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with the sincerity of heart and of reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Quite a passage on our hands. Are you nervous for me? (laughs) But such an important passage as Paul is going to lay out for us the implications of God's renewing work, not just in our lives individually, but in all of our relationships. And as he writes this letter, he's writing about relationships that are in the context of relationships in the early church at that time. Because the early church was filled with husbands and wives and children and masters and slaves. And what does it mean to follow Jesus in these contexts? And so today I want to dive into this passage with you. Now, this represents one of those passages that more than most throughout history has been greatly misunderstood, taken out of context, and used in ways to to hurt people and out of assumptions or personal preferences that have been imposed on the meaning of the passage to dictate certain terms of relationships that have been hurtful, even abusive, in throughout history. And so over the last 2,000 years, there's sort of like a mountain of assumptions about what Paul means here that are taken out of the theological context of Paul's thinking. And we're going to try to sift through that, not in detail, but I want to put pull us into the theological context of this passage, what Paul is laying out for us. What does renewal in our relationships look like in Paul's mind so that we can then begin to go, okay, maybe it'll start to help us see through some of the misunderstandings that we've gotten caught up into and start to see through some of the hurt and the wounds that we've experienced. And my, my hope is that if we get through this, We're going to not see this passage as something to be embarrassed about or as an enemy, but actually as a great friend and a picture of promise in God's renewing of our relationships with each other. All right? But first, I just want to make sure it's clear. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of hurt with some of these, with this passage. And I think we're going to straighten some of that out today and bring some healing and bring some renewal. Come on now. 
All right, so today, I hope with the help of the Holy Spirit to bring clarity about what this passage is trying to inspire in us and uh, to help us allow the passage to put us in touch with the rhythm of God's grace, inviting us into his gospel dance for, with one another. So how many people got to do the gospel dance this last week, from last week? How many people, come on now, anybody here get to do a gospel dance? You get to do a little repenting? little believing, a little obeying. All right, not many of us, not many of us needed to do that. I need to go find a Sinners Anonymous group, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I've been doing it all week. I've just been up and down with family, friends, coworkers, finding those rad opportunities to dive into this dance with the Lord and to repent, to realign my eyes on Christ, to put my eyes on Jesus, and to obey with renewed clarity and conviction. So, we're going to take this model, this, this dynamic, which is how we participate in God's renewal of our lives individually and in our relationships, and we're going to apply it to all the relationships in our life, okay? Um, this last week, we looked at it on an individual level, but this week, we're going to move it to our relationships. And that gets us to what I want to focus on today. This is what we're going to really drill down into in this passage, in this message. That the gospel dance is the key to God's renewing work in our lives, both personally, but also in all of our relationships. I'm going to unpack it in two stages. The first is, what does renewal look like in our relationships? What's the biblical vision of what renewal is going to look like as we are growing more and more like Christ with one another, as parents, as co-workers, as uh, husband and wife, as men and women, how, how is, what is the destination in mind? What's the, the postcard picture that we're moving toward? Then secondly, how do we apply the gospel dance to our relationships? We'll look at how Paul applies it to context in his churches, and we'll look at it for our life. But let me pray for us. Lord, as we go into this, man, God, we're all, if we're all a little honest, this is one of those passages a lot of us would like to, can we just skip that one? But Lord, I pray this, that there will be a sense of safety in this room, that there's nothing in your word we need to skip, avoid, but your gospel is at the heart of every passage of the Bible. And here, God, we pray, bring to light the beauty and the power of the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, in this really challenging area of learning to dance with one another, despite all of our pride, our egos, our sensitivities, our differences, how can we get in step with each other and with you? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Renewal in relationships. What does the Bible picture about where we're going, right? Before you go anywhere, you, don't, you ever go on a trip? And you start looking at pictures of that vacation spot. Ever done that? Maybe going to college, you start. My son can go online now. They couldn't do this when I was going to college. It was just like you got, you know, stuff in the mail and you looked at pictures on a piece of paper. But now you can look at videos where they fly, people will fly drones around the campus, you know. It's just three-dimensional explorations of the dorm rooms. It's unbelievable the way that you can see where you're going nowadays. The Bible wants to lay out this powerful inspiring and yet challenging vision of where we are going together as a community of God. And it's in, we'll start with verse 14 in our passage. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Can we all say unity? Yes. Unity is one of these ideas that's meant to represent to us where are we going together? 
Where are we going? And no matter how we do what we do, we have to ask ourselves, is it allowing us to move together in greater unity? Because if it's not, there's something off about the way we're doing what we're doing. Unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of what? One body. Again, that unity. You were called to peace to be thankful. Now, I love this metaphor of one body. It's a metaphor that Paul uses to kind of give us a picture of how we are all coming together so different, right? We just got all kinds of tastes. Some of us, you know, just love tacos. Some of us love flour tortillas. Some of us love the corn. Any, any, any corn tortilla fans in here? Come on now. You get a warm, fresh-made corn tortilla, it'll blow a flour any day. <laughs> oh, it's just so, so gritty. We all got our different preferences and opinions. However, we're being moved together as one body, and that goes back to the dancing metaphor. I think dancing is a great imagery of this oneness because what's so beautiful about salsa is when it's one thing to dance by yourself. You know, if you're just doing your salsa by yourself, eh, that's fine. But it's when you see two people in coordinated step moving to a rhythm together as one, it's just breathtaking. I want to show you this video of this couple. They go all over the world and video themselves dancing salsa in different cities of the world. Just look at how these guys move together. They, he just jumps in and boom, they're just spinning, they're just turning, and there's just like a gracefulness about it. Doesn't it look easy? Don't you just think that right now, if you had a chance, you could come up and do it right now? Look at these guys, turning, twisting, moving. This is such a beautiful picture of what it means for us to move together as one body in unity to the rhythm of God's grace together. But you know what? If you could see a picture now of me when I was first learning to dance <laughs> with my wife, the first time I took her out, finally got my lessons, I took her out, and it was, uh, it was just a bunch of missteps, and I stepped on her toes probably like six times. It's easy to dance by yourself, but as soon as you get with another person, that's when it goes up a notch. But that's what Paul is trying to get us to imagine, this being in step with one another. And the steps to this dance are the gospel. And this idea of unity is the first idea that Paul gives us about where we're going to. So if last week was, let's go back a spot. If last week was about moving from the old self to the new self, we talked about that, right? You remember that? This week, in relationship, it's about moving from disunity. You wash the dishes. No, you wash the dishes. No, you wash the dishes. You lift the toilet seat up. No, you, you know, and all the back and forth that we get into. You pick up the kids. No, I am right. No, we're going to do it this way. You know, all that stuff. And the, the atmosphere of, of like anger, even rage and, and selfishness and greed that can come up in that environment. Paul talks about that. Disunity. But where gospel renewal is taking us is towards unity. And that's the raised life. But we're not being raised alone. We're being raised together in community. And that segues into this next uh, image. What is this new humanity, the church, the family of God look like? The first idea that Paul puts out is this idea of unity. Okay, that's the first. But um, there's other key concepts that we're going to look at, and this is going to create a framework for us to understand where is the Bible nudging us towards in our relationships together. We have to understand this and see it as a compass, because if you don't have that compass, you could be going, you feel like you're going north, but you're just going south. You're going the wrong direction. And this is going to help us point true north, or in this case, 
towards kingdom love, which is our true north. But here we go. Unity, one body. We're going to explore this idea of freedom. We're moving together in our relationships as a church body with increasing freedom together. You got that? You can almost kind of imagine how that's going to show up in the passage. We're talking about wives and husbands and submission and masters and slaves. But the community of God is representing to the world a totally different relational dynamic that's meant to stand out and be totally different. And so freedom is an important concept we're going to explore. And equality. These three concepts, I think, form sort of like a bullseye for us. But we all can imagine scenarios where people learning to exercise freedom, imagine a 16-year-old just got their license, learning to exercise their freedom, but not doing it in love. They don't want to pick anybody up. They don't want to help the family. They just want to use it to go out and do their thing with their friends, right? Yeah, welcome to my dad life. (laughs) Or learning to exercise equality. And maybe what we draw to mind today are some of the more aggressive and militant activist movements that have a good thing in mind, that we ought to care for all human beings and treat them as equal. However, the way that they do it in the end is we're going to reverse one person in domination for another, and it comes at the expense of other people who are vilified and caricatured and viewed as, as less than because, well, you've been the oppressor. You've been in control. Now it's time for you to have the tables flipped on you. And that's not the kingdom of God either. That is not the kingdom of God. God does not want to replace one dictator for another. So, you got that part? All right. I want to unpack these two ideas of freedom and equality real quick. Let's, let's uh, go to the freedom. Now, we got to get this theological context. As we look at what Paul's doing with the wives and the children and the husbands and the masters and the slaves, if we don't see it in this context, you're, we're not going to understand. It's just going to look like, oh, okay, wives is forever, just do whatever you're told and don't ask questions. Masters or slaves, stay in slavery and just do whatever you're told, and that's the end of the story. And that is an absolutely poor, terrible, unbiblical understanding of what Paul's trying to get at there. But nonetheless, this passage has been used in American history to argue that some people are just meant to stay slaves. No, that's true. The church, many churches actually, antebellum south, it was used to do that. We got to sort through that. Okay, maybe we, none of us right now would find that tasteful and agree with that, but what does the Bible offer? What is it really saying about what this, what Paul's trying to get to? We need to understand the, this, this compass, this unity, freedom, equality grid. Now, freedom. Do you remember when Jesus said this in John 8? So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you remember that? The Christian community represents this sort of oasis, this enclave of new freedom for people that had never had freedom before in their life. Can you imagine hearing about a community of people gathering where they view, get this, all human beings are created equal. Can you imagine such a place? People were hearing about this. That there were these communities that were showing up that were, well, there's a story of like, well, well keep going. Galatians 5.1. Paul takes the same idea that Jesus said, and he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 1 Peter 2.16, Peter writes about it. Live as free people. 
But see, if you're sitting there and you are actually a slave and you are not free, does that, does that, it would be confusing. What does that mean for me? And so Paul is going to sort that out. But look, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So the Bible takes this idea that is just viewed as like the worst, lowest condition you can be in, and they take it and they go, you know what? That is not the worst. Let's take it now and let's use it because actually we're slaves of God, all of us. And what the point of that is, is to put us all free and slave, men, women, adults, children, Jew, Gentile, we are all equal before God. He is our master, and we report to him. He is Lord. This is what he's trying to do here. Show respect to everyone. So in the exercising of our freedom, don't, for, don't, let it, don't use that freedom as a justification to fall back again into that old self, that self-centered, argumentative, I gotta have it my way kind of attitude. Don't let it do that to you because it's gonna be tempting, and we'll, we'll look at that more. Okay, let's move on to equality. Now, equality shows up in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, when Paul says this, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul repeats it in Colossians, There is neither Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female. You are all what? One. Come on now, what? One. one. We're one. Now, what does he mean by this? What is he talking about? Maybe it's starting to come a little more clear. He's taking these dualities, these tension points in human society, these points of these pecking order elements in society. So for the Jew, if you're a Jewish, you are closer to God, more significant and valuable to God than a Gentile. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's gone. Paul's saying, hey, Jews, that's gone. You don't have a better standing with God because you're Jewish than the Gentiles even if they are not circumcised. And they're like, what did you just say? And then he's saying, let's go to some other duality, these points of tension in society where people want to power up over each other. He's like, okay, how about male, female? There's another one. Come on. I mean, I remember the first week I got married, you know, first week I was in the home, it was just a battle it was like a battle royale in the bathroom, in the kitchen, what's going to happen with the toilet seat, what's going to happen with dinner, what's going to happen with Saturday morning chores. It was just us trying to work it out. Do you, can you relate to that? Okay, how about this one? Uh, rich and poor. There's another duality, right, where the rich are viewed as more significant and more favored by God than the poor. And the, 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 these are these tension points with male versus female. Jew versus Gentile, rich versus poor, slave versus free. And Paul is saying in the church, in the family of God, that's gone. That us versus them, you versus me, me versus you, us versus those guys, that has to end in the family of God because of what Jesus has done. He has leveled the playing field, and we are all equal and one together in Christ. We are all in need of forgiveness. We are all children of God. We are co-heirs together in the gospel. 
Now, this is so crucial because this sets up, what does Paul mean by all this? Well, he gets to it in the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. Um, In 2 Corinthians 8, he's addressing one of those dualities in the church. It's the rich versus poor duality. And he's saying, rich, use what you have to build people up. Hey, give generously, but don't give to the point where you are like, oh my gosh, now I have nothing. He's like, let's And he's giving them instruction on how to use their power, their wealth, their influence, their freedom in a way that builds and raises others up. And look at what he says here. He's like, look, guys, I'm sorting through the details here. I'm trying to hold your hand through it. But here is the point. The point is, or the goal is, what? Equality. Equality. He's trying to move us towards equality. He's like, hey, guys, do you have more and this person has less? Then, well, then share it with that person. The point is, is that the gospel is moving us towards an equality with one another as children of God. And then there's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So actually, I won't go into the next one because of our time. But how about this? Gospel renewal is about maturing our relationships with one another towards greater oneness freedom, and equality. But the way in which we pursue this, don't let it cause you to fall back into your old self where you're fighting for your rights, fighting to get what you need, what you want, what you think is best in a way that breaks up the unity and the oneness of your relationships and the church. Okay, does that make sense? Now, the last thing I want to say before I move on is this. Do you remember last we were talking about, hey, you're being renewed. And who you are today is just a glimpse of who you're becoming tomorrow. Who you'll become tomorrow, right, is not who you are today. You're growing. You're in a process of maturing. Does that make sense? The gospel, when it was planted in you, fully saved you. But the sanctification, the renewing of who you are as a person in your values, your thoughts, your practices, your lifestyle is a process that goes through our whole life. Does that make sense? It's a little bit like when Jesus said, when you, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When you plant it at first, it's so small. It's the smallest seed, but it grows into the largest. Over time, it grows into the largest shrub in the garden. Does that make sense? You're growing. The church is the same. This is where we're going. Can we go up to the three circles? This is where we're going, but as Paul is sowing the seed of the gospel, he's just getting started. He's just getting started, and the implications of the gospel in human relationships was just getting started. We don't see the full maturity of it in Paul's day any more than you would in a human being. It's growing in the church. I'll give you an example. The way this stuff gets worked out later in human society, right? Think about employment law right? Today we look around and we go, okay, yeah, we understand that owning another human being and chattel slavery is abhorrent. We agree with that. And we've instead developed a system of employment that is equitable, where people have rights, they have health benefits, they're paid, they're respected. A much bigger improvement on the slavery structure of the Roman era. Wouldn't you agree? I'll give you another example. Women, not allowed to vote in the Roman era. Paul doesn't fight for that. He's not trying to upend social structure. He's trying to subversively plant the seed of the gospel 
in human relationship within the church to give witness to society. And so he doesn't make these big pushes to like end slavery or women now need to vote, they're equal, they're free, we need to do all this. No, 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 he doesn't do that. But when we get to women's suffrage, when we get to the time when women are allowed to vote, aren't we better for it? Yeah. Huh? Are we? Are we? I don't know. Are we, are we, maybe not. Are we sure? Yes, we should be. We wouldn't want to look back at that moment and say, you know, that was, oh man, that was just the end of everything. No. That was a step in the right direction. Maybe there were some ways in which people advocated for it we don't agree with. Yes, that happens. That happens. Just like there's not every way in which a teenager uses the car that's right, but you know what? That's a new freedom they got, and they got to learn how to use it right. Sometimes they, you know, they, they scuff it up, they damage it. There are ways in which we pursue these things in ways that are not right, but where we're going is good. And we, look, and we look at the end of slavery, and we're grateful. We look at the end of women not having that freedom to vote. These are examples of the gospel having been seeded in the soil of the human society and over human history, it growing and bearing fruit that maybe back in the early church, they hadn't even imagined. They couldn't even imagine a democracy where at the basis of our view is that all men and women are created equal. That idea of a society based on that was inconceivable. He couldn't imagine that, but here we are. And we know that those ideals are rooted in a Judeo-Christian vision of human life. Now, why do I say all that? Because this is about where God is taking us, and even though we're not there individually or even as a church or a society, Paul wants to guide us in how to take our steps with where we're at right now today. And that's where we get to the application. And in the application, in verses 18 to 25, he addresses two groups of people. The first group are the wives, the children, and the slaves. And to them, he's like, in your newfound freedom, in your newfound equality, I want, I want to call you to submit. Don't forget submission. In your new freedom, don't forget about submit, because you'll be tempted to forget. I'm free, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Well, hold on. Because we're a body together. You're not going to just go dance however you want. We're doing the salsa together. You're not going to go dance to, like, I don't know, what, you know, to Drake or some other new hip-hop artist. You're like, dude, we are dancing salsa. You're not here to do the electric bugaloo. You're here to do the salsa, and we're moving together. And then to the second group, the husbands, the fathers, the masters, He's like, you, you, as you are making room for this newfound freedom and equality with women and children and, and slaves, don't forget to love. Don't forget to love. As they are starting to exercise their freedom and their equality with you, and we'll look at an example of that in a minute, where that was really getting down to brass tacks. He's like, don't suppress it. Don't resist it. And he says in verse, what does he say? He says in uh, verses 19 and 21, don't be harsh. Don't embitter your children and don't discourage them. As your children are growing up and maturing, don't beat them down. You got, you, okay, I'll give you an example. You know, it's like when my kid, when they were, kids were young and they didn't do what I wanted, what did I do? I just grabbed them and put them under my arm. And boom, we, walk, we marched to the bedroom, and I put him in their crib. You're getting a timeout. It was that easy. But now he's 16. Now he's 16. 
And I tried to grab that guy and it almost broke my back. And then essentially he could put me under his arm and carry me. So now when there's tension, I can't just grab him and march him into the bedroom. And now because he's matured emotionally and psychologically, now we have deeper conversation together. I don't mean like he gets to do whatever he wants, but when there's conflict, we work it out together. I'll be like, son, da-da-da. He's like, but dad, you said da-da-da. And I'm like, you know, you're right. I did say that. (laughs) All right. You're right. I did. I did. You're okay. Okay. But, and we got to work it out. It doesn't work anymore to just say, I'm your dad. I said it. Just deal with it. I mean, sometimes it is. Like when it comes to washing the dishes, just deal with it. But, but you get what I'm saying. Where I'm learning to love him as he is exercising more and more freedom. And it's going to get to a point where I walk into his house and he tells me what to do. Watch out now, parents. Any grandparents in the house? Isn't that just the weirdest thing? You're like, I am a pro. I have been at this longer than you. And you're telling me, okay, all right. You're telling me the rules for the kids. But we all know what it's like to have the grandparents in the house. And we're like, hey, you know what? We're not going to watch those shows you let me watch. No, no, no. We're not doing that. No, no. We're not going to let the kids. No, no, no. And you're trying to lay rules on your parents, isn't it? Oh, it's come full circle now. And it's got to. It, doesn't it have to? It does. It's got to come full circle where we are embracing them and and raising them up into maturity. So, in this newfound freedom in first century Rome, Paul is saying, you are free, you are equal. Slaves, you are equal to your master. And you are free. Wives, you are equal to your husbands and you are free. Free from what? For them, it was the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias was that legally the husband had legal rights over the wife, the children, and the slaves in all the same manner. And uh, like he could sell his kids into slavery. This is the system that Paul was writing in to people. And he's trying to help them navigate what does freedom look like without trying to also upend all these social structures because that's not what his calling is. And yet in the kingdom of God, there's a new vision that doesn't align with the paterfamilia, that doesn't align with that social structure. So how does he do it? How does he get him there? How does he go, look, I'm not looking to be a political leader that's changing the laws of the Roman Empire. Not that he could anyway, they would have just killed him. But he's trying to bring a new vision in the way that people relate to one another in the church. And so he's saying, wives, in your new freedom, don't forget submission. Don't forget it. Because you know what? When you get a soda can and it's all pent up, what happens? Man, that stuff is everywhere. And you get this new freedom. You're like, hey, and he's like, don't let it turn into conflict and fighting in the home over over who gets their way and over how things are going to go. And he's saying that to children. Hey, look, don't forget in your freedom to obey your parents. When I first became a believer... My parents didn't want me going to church. My, they didn't feel safe. They felt like you guys were a bunch of cult weirdos. And they said, you are not hanging out with all those Jesus freaks. Straight up. No, you're not going. And so what do you do? What, did it, what, what should I do? Here I am in high school. My parents are telling me, don't go to church. I don't want you in a cult. Do I just say, well, this is God, mom. And you answer to God. I'm going anyways. Well, that's what I kind of did. And it caused fighting in the home. 
And it turned into big conflicts in the home. And I, I think you've heard this story before where my brother turned to me and goes, it just feels like becoming a Christian just means you're constantly fighting with, our mom, with mom and dad. I'll never forget it. It really hit me. And I changed my posture. I just submitted to my parents. And I said, okay, I won't go to church on Sunday anymore. I'm going to listen to K-Wave. And then, you know what? I didn't know how God was going to work out, how he was going to protect my faith. But I'm, I'm just like, I need to honor my parents. I need to honor them. And I'm like, how do I do that and hold to you, Lord, because you're number one? Do I just need to say, I'm going to be like those martyrs. I'm just going to die for you, Lord. And my parents are going to kick me out of the house. And God gave me a better way. A way that preserved that unity, that freedom, but yet the unity and the love. And it turned out that a few weeks, maybe a month later, I can't remember exactly how long, my friends invited me to a Monday night because I couldn't go with them to church. Monday night, Greg Laurie, Costa Mesa. I said, Mom, can I go to that? She's like, yeah, Monday night's not church. You can go to that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that happened, but it did. And then next thing you know, I, I, I didn't see that happening. I trusted God, and I submitted. Husbands to love. And what is love? I want to really, love is the ethic that raises others up alongside themselves. I want to be very clear about love. Love is not like, okay, just be really nice. You're going to do whatever I tell you to do, but I'm going to be really nice to you. I'm going to love you. That's not what, that's really not what I think Paul's getting at. Love is the ethic that seeks to raise, empower others up, consider Paul, and then let's consider Christ, and then consider you. Let's consider Paul. Paul, do you know that one of the suspected couriers of this letter, Colossians, along with the letter of Philemon, is none other than a guy named Onesimus? You ever heard of Onesimus? Nick referenced him a few weeks ago. Onesimus is a, well, they don't know who, if he was a runaway or what, but he's a slave belonging to Philemon. And he has become dear, like a spiritual son to Paul. And he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Hmm. You know, it just kind of looks like Paul's just like, hey, just be passive, just fit in the system. But wait, wait, read this. Let me read this to you. In Philemon, um, in Philemon, verse 16, he says, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a what? A fellow man. Can you see, you see right there? You see that love of Paul? I'm raising you up. I'm, I'm bringing Onesimus up with me. And you, Philemon, I'm putting Onesimus next to you. He's a fellow man, right? Because slavery would see the person as, a, as an object, as like a possession, and then he says, and as a brother in the Lord. And now this is it right here. And then he's kind of, I won't go into the details, but he's kind of winking and saying, I don't want to force you. I, don't want to, I could order you to do this, Philemon, but I want you to consider what this means for your relationship now. Do you see where Paul's going with this? I want you to think about this now, Philemon. And he doesn't, I could order you, but I won't. I want you to do it voluntarily. I want you to do it out of love. And if, wink, wink, you decide to do the right thing, he kind of says that, if you decide to do the right thing, ergo emancipation, to release him and to make him a part of the family, 
Listen to verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, verse 18. Do we have that? Mm, We don't. Okay. It's so powerful to see it. Oh, well. Verse 18. Charge it to me. Charge it to me. So what's Paul saying? I will carry the cost of raising up Onesimus so he can be equal and free along with you. It's not a big diatribe on the end of slavery in the Roman era. He's working with individuals in relationship in the church, saying we have a different vision. We're going somewhere different. And he's inviting Philemon to be a part of it. Love raises others up into their equality and their freedom. Does that make sense? And this is what Jesus did, who took on our sin, our poverty, he, to make us rich with him. I mean, he came down. He took our poverty on himself so that we could be rich in his righteousness. And he submitted himself on the cross, and by submitting himself, he committed the most powerful act in human history. And through that act of submission, he released the power of the gospel to save the entire world, to restore us in unity and freedom and equality with each other, and to restore us into right relationship with God as our king. No longer pretending or lording ourselves as kings over one another, over our wives, our children, over our employees, over other human beings. But a a reversal, not a, oh, you were king, now you're the slave. No, 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 no. Together becoming slaves of God. I'll invite the band to come out. You know, it's interesting as we go, as we go into this song, I don't know, I, I, you, you do with this what you want, you play with this, go wherever you want with it. It's just an observation. You look at these passages and it does have a lot about the submission for wives to husbands. And I think, there's a, like I said, there's a reason for that. This newfound freedom, he's like, don't forget it. However, um, and there's no indication, no, no statement about husbands needing to submit to their wives. There is Ephesians, submit to one another. Right? In, in Ephesians, in the Bible, there's submit to God. There's statements about submitting to his word, submitting to one another, submitting to human authority, okay? Government leaders. Um, and we could draw inferences about that. Well, he never says husbands submit. No, oh, okay, all right. But you know what I also found? Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul ever instruct wives to love their husbands. I couldn't find it. Maybe you'll find it this week. I just couldn't find it. Maybe it's there. But it's hidden enough that I couldn't find it on multiple searches. Maybe you'll find it. But we know there's the injunction to love one another, don't we? Ah. What if submission isn't about becoming a doormat and passive? What if a doormat, what if submission is actually something more Christ-like? What if submission is an invitation to become more like Jesus? And it's not just a submission, a one-way submission, but Jesus is inviting us into a mutual submission where we participate in his divine nature, whereby through submission, he saved the world through, here it is, an assertive attitude of respect, humility, and cooperation 
with others to bring about their good. What if that's what we're all being invited into? Husbands are are called to love, but what if we're all called to love? Wives are called to submit, but what if given this idea of submission, we're all called to submit? We're all called to submit before God to one another and to the presence of Christ and the truth of God in one another to use our freedom to raise others up into it. And as we explore our equality and freedom in certain situations, to not do it in a way that brings conflict, to not grasp, to not be contentious or divisive, but to do it with gentleness and humility. And even in the scriptures, even if for a time you suffer inconvenience or difficulty, I'm not talking about abuse, but difficulty or misunderstanding, you are willing to endure that even for a time as you work out God's grace in that relationship for the sake of being one together, for the glory of God. Submission is the freedom from the terrible burden of always having to get our way. There's a great book called, by Richard Foster called Celebration and Discipline, a whole chapter devoted to the practice of submission which is a spiritual practice which enables all of us to learn how to just put to death that part of us that's just got to have our way so that we are more free to stand in truth with God's will and what God wants in a situation. Because sometimes what we want, not that it's irrelevant, but it exerts such influence we lose sight of what God wants. And that only exalts herself, will diminish others, and miss God. God wants to bring renewal to our relationships, and you're going to have to dance it out. There's no way to move in relation without a little dancing. you got to dance. I remember seeing this couple. They were like in their 70s. This is like right before COVID started. We went down to Cafe Sevilla in their 70s. They weren't very acrobatic, but they were like just this rad old couple just in a zone together just just moving, just gliding. And I was like, babe, I want to be like those guys. Let's start dancing so by the time we're their age, we can be like them. Just graceful, smooth. This week, I want to invite you to consider where is there need for renewal in relationships in your life? Where is God inviting you into that gospel dance of repenting, believing, and obeying? Where do you see an opportunity to bring somebody up with you into a place of increased freedom and responsibility? Yeah, sometimes it's scary. The first time I drove with my son out of our apartment, our housing complex, with him in the driver's seat, I thought I was gonna die. I was like, it's over, I'm gonna die. uh, But you know what, I didn't die. And as I came alongside him and brought him up into this new freedom, he's a great driver. He's a great driver and helps us with, our, with his siblings and it's awesome. But there's more serious applications for us in our life that will put to death our old self if we'll open our eyes and see the opportunity the old self that's got to be in control, have it our way, be in charge. That's the old self. 
The new self is flexible, peaceful, doesn't insist on their own way. I'm quoting scripture, considers others better than themselves, is quick to listen before making a decision than speaking their own amazing wisdom to the other. This, this is the spirit of Christ. Could you use some of that? You want some of that? Let me just send you out with a blessing. Lord, we pray, send us out this week with the courage to do the gospel dance in our relationships. And may we just, even if little by little, participate and see the renewing of these relationships in your grace and your love towards unity, equality, and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 15 seconds early, go get them.